All right, we're joined now by cannabis journalist and co-host of the podcast Great Moments in Weed History with Abdullah and Bean, David Beanstock. David, is this your first time on the podcast? I know we've had you on Means TV a few times, but... Yeah, I, I got to say, I was the first person to smoke weed on Beans TV, uh, at least on your program yes, that you I were. know of. Uh, so I'm going to uh, keep that going right now as uh, well, my I, premiere here. I came, <laughs> I came prepared as well because I know we weren't going to do uh, a segment with David without him getting high. So I figured I had to bring some uh, weaponry here. Uh, SK, Guys, I, I hate to sound like a narc, but I'm actually... I'm on a break from oh, weed. Man. He's on a break. That, I was not prepared be... for that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you know, I always tell people if you think you need a break, you probably do. And, you know, yeah. Uh, so we support. And, you know, uh, as a member of the weed community, we will be right here waiting for you if and when you uh, want to come back. Plenty of weed. <laughs> and I, I think it's a matter of, uh, of when more than if. But I don't know. It, it, it might be a good to uh, cut down on the uh, the frequency with which I was doing it before. Always and, good. Uh, yeah, always good to change sometimes the frequencies. I went through that phase uh, a few months ago where uh, I was really cutting back on it, and now I'm back in it heavy again. But uh, <laughs> we'll, 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 uh, as, as David said, we'll welcome you back. There's plenty plenty left here to go around for everyone. Um, and uh, when I when I do eventually spark up again, Boy, howdy, am I going to get baked. <laughs> yeah, that's the benefit of the tolerance break, the reduction of tolerance. So, David, you've got a new article up on Leafly that we're going to talk about, among other things. I just wanted to ask Who you. Who knew there were articles on Leafly, by the way? I, I am used to to going on Leafly to uh, check to see what the uh, approximate THC content of whatever strain, you know, the orange blueberry or the... Uh, the Hindu Kush or the Osama bin Laden or whatever it is I'm going to smoke. Yeah, David, are you part of the committee that determines whether something's a sativa or indica on uh, Leafly? What is that process? Uh, we meet in seclusion. Uh, it is a shadowy group. And, and when a puff of smoke emerges from the from the hilltops, a new strain has been uh, <laughs> anointed by us. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, it's it's what's great is that whole tradition of, of not just cultivating the plant, but breeding new varieties all happened in the underground. All the, uh, you know, other than the land race strains, which are indigenous to different regions around the world. So uh, Acapulco Gold is really an indigenous Mexican strain of cannabis. Uh, and you could get uh, as far flung as, you know, Kush comes from the Kush Mountain region. Uh, but all the crosses, all of that was done by the underground. And it is like these sort of citizen scientists uh, slash, you know, weed smoking Wookiees <laughs> who have, uh, it's a great uh, lesson in, in a kind of anarchism in a way, because there's no governing body of it uh and yet it has functioned really well and produced amazing variety of cannabis it's the, you know when you compare it to what happens to you know a crop like tomatoes that through capitalism gets winnowed down to these really hard red flavorless tomatoes you find in most supermarkets uh less and less varieties less and less quality all 
uh, forced into the capitalist system so that those tomatoes are easy to ship, easy to package, increasingly so that it can be automated and, and have robots replacing farm workers. And meanwhile, cannabis, because it was outside of that system, that's where you get, you know, purpleberry dinosaur Hindu Kush and th <laughs> these literal thousands of varieties. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting to see that uh, transition as we move into a more capitalist approach to cannabis. Uh, but, you know, we still smoke on the soldier, uh, we still smoke on the shoulders of giants who, who really bred all of these different varieties. Yeah. I, uh, I'm on a dabs kick right now, but I'll occasionally crave some flour and I want like really good buds. Cause like, I feel like I don't get the good buds that I used to get when I was in college and stuff. It's hard just to find those really good crippy nugs that you used to get. <laughs> and uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll peruse the, the menus here on the, all the delivery services here in DC that are partially legal. And um, I'll try to find some kind of top shelf buds that they have and sometimes you, you got to pay a premium for that stuff and i'll do it just trying to chase that chase that dragon that i've been chasing since college and i got to i got some kind that was advertised as this super complex mix but the name of the strand was just meat breath <laughs> <laughs> there's no accounting for taste and i gotta say they were they were really good looking nugs it was a good high they were a little dried out but um yeah it's it was it was nice to uh to get back i i don't i i won't say that i quite ca caught the dragon i didn't quite capture the nug i was envisioning but meat breath it, it, it did the trick for that night so uh david i want to talk about your article on leafly but first i want to ask you if you happen to catch any of the confirmation hearing for Deb Holland, the uh, congresswoman who's Joe Biden's pick to be interior secretary. Uh, there was a point in the hearing, she had previously taken a position uh, calling for an end to uh, drilling on federal lands. And she was attacked saying, you know, local governments get a lot of their revenue from these oil leases to companies on public lands. How would you replace that? And she said, through taxing marijuana. So she was attacked by Republican senators during her confirmation hearing for taking that position. And at one point, Senator John Barrasso uh, was saying, well, is this is this Joe Biden's official policy when he's going to put all these fossil fuel workers out of a job? Is he going to tell them to start slinging marijuana? Is that what the new joe biden marijuana policy is and i was just thinking to myself that sounds like a really good ass policy let's move all the coal miners and fossil fuel workers into uh dispensaries and grow areas and uh boost the weed oh. economy unfortunately i don't think that is joe biden's official policy is it uh not not precisely i can i can only say for myself uh between slang and bags of weed and wildcat oil drilling i've only done one of those jobs uh <laughs> but my, my assumption is that uh selling selling weed is 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 a better vibe and uh you know no harm done 
uh, particularly if we if we set regulations to grow this plant in an environmentally regenerative way or certainly in an environmentally responsible way uh so it's it's my official policy and you know we as we <clears throat> i think the thing that is the big picture item here is it always hurts me a little bit to see the reason to legalize cannabis put forth uh, as an economic one, because the most compelling and the most uh, pressing reason to do it is to stop the arrest of 600,000 Americans, hugely racially biased and abusive prohibition system that we're under. So that's the reason to legalize along with it comes these kind of economic benefits along with it comes you know green jobs I, I do love my weed puns but it's true um and we can transition people from these extraction industries that uh are very environmentally harmful into something new and better and um you know that process is is ongoing already you know cannabis jobs in the states where it's legal are growing, employing a lot of people and employing people at every level of the economy. You know, sometimes the focus is a lot on how big capitalized entities are coming into the weed industry. And I've been a huge critic of that on a lot of levels, but it's also the story of people getting a job as a bud tender. And, you know, I look back to my time when I was a young person, that would have been such an incredible job to have. Uh, and especially, you know, if you can work for an employer who's going to make it a good job with a good wage and benefits, and that's increasingly happening. So, uh, you know, it's, I, you know, if we're going to go by what Republican senators say, you know, we're, we're not going to do anything good. Well, I, I, would uh, actually, I, I would disagree <laughs> with that, David, because increasingly their vision of what liberals are what they would call liberals or the left want to do are very good ideas uh, the, their worst nightmares ended up being uh, things that were like, yeah, let's, let's do that. Um, but in reality, we have Joe Biden who uh, campaigned wouldn't go as far as supporting legalization of marijuana at a federal level, but does support a form of decriminalization. But as you wrote in, in your piece, um, there are strings attached uh, when we start bringing up things like mandatory rehabilitation for drug offenses. Yeah, it's it's on. So on the campaign trail and since Joe Biden has kind of stuck to this line, nobody should be in jail uh, for a nonviolent drug offense. And that is, of course, absolutely true. But the huge asterisk on that statement is he usually follows up by saying we should essentially be forcing people into rehab. It's unclear if, if that means for cannabis offenses, because the idea would be if you're decriminalizing this, uh, then by what means would you be forcing people into rehab? But for myself and many, many other people, um, the issue of the war on cannabis is really an issue of the war on drugs. And when we look at forced rehab and whether you call it forced rehab, which is what it is, or whether you want to pick a, you know, call it drug courts or interventions or whatever, here's a couple of problems. One, 
telling people you have to do this or you go to jail is part of the incarceration state. Uh, it's That's not a choice. Um, worse, it does not work. Uh, so there was a 2017 report uh, from Physicians for Human Rights and it said, quote, Drug courts in the U.S. routinely fail to provide adequate medically sound treatment for substance use disorders with treatment plans that are at times designed and facilitated by individuals with little to no medical training. Few communities have adequate treatment facilities, insurance plans often won't finance effective treatment programs, and the criminal justice objectives of drug courts often overrule the medical needs of the patient in ways that threaten the rights and health of participants. Other than that, great system. Um, and as we look at, well, what are these rehab uh, facilities that people are being forced into, some of them, not all of them, and I don't want to paint everybody in the in the recovery uh, community or industry in a bad light, but there is a huge problem with abusive policies and practices in that industry. And so forcing people into it is a huge mistake. It is a continuation of the war on drugs, not a diversion from it. Um, and it does not have uh, good outcomes. What we need to do is not try to ameliorate the harms of the war on drugs, but uproot it entirely, rethink it entirely, and start over based around a set of principles uh, that are not only humane, <clears throat> but actually effective in helping people access help when they want it and need it. Um, separating between people, the vast majority of people, whatever substance we're talking about, who do not have problematic use. And of course, uh, Carl Hart's excellent book, Drug Use for Grownups, and his uh, very brave to me uh, willingness to speak out about his own use of heroin and other substances, you know, is reframing this discussion. Most drug use is not problematic. Drug use that is problematic is not going to be helped by a criminal justice approach. Uh, so no matter where you fall on that spectrum, um, you're being disserved at the very least and perhaps incarcerated and having your life ruined by this prohibition approach. Um, so that is something that we all really need to push back on. I think when I look at uh, the Biden administration plans, it's it's one of the most uh, concerning, of course, to me personally, but I think across the board, you know, you can't say we're going to follow the science and have this sanctimonious soundbite around it, but then ignore all of the science uh, and all of the studies and all of the real life experience of people that just screams out the drug war is a failure, the drug war is racist, and the drug war is devastating to communities. And not to mention that basically, I mean, for rehab to, to, for, to maximize the chances of success for rehab, people have to want to do it. Like if you're going to drag someone kicking and screaming into rehab at the threat of going to prison, even if they, you know, white knuckle it and get through the program, chances are they're going to relapse. And, uh, you know, 
relapse, I use the term loosely because I mean, when you don't want to quit, it's, it's not really relapsing. It's just sort of continuing, uh, what you were doing and, 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 uh, you know, you you got to jump over these hurdles before you got to, before you can get high now. But I, I was wondering, um, obviously the criminal justice system in this country, uh, varies state by state and county by county, but it does sound like that the uh, rehab industry, that there's a lot of money in it, and uh, it, it's quite a big industry. Are there any names that we would recognize in terms of uh, companies that are profiting off of this? Like, if I were to go to opensecrets.org uh, and try to search for uh, which of these companies are giving lawmakers what money, are, are there any names that uh, jump out at you that I could uh, plug into that? Um, that's not a side of things that I tend to follow as closely, you know, the, the, there's been great reporting on abuses in the rehab industry that I would say maybe point people to, uh, an investigation last year from reveal, which is the center for investigative reporting, uh, looked at basically, I would say, skip those companies and look at Walmart, Popeye's KFC, Coca-Cola bottling plants where people are being forced to work for free as Mm. part of their quote rehab. Um, And if you want to follow the money, um, that is a national shame. That is in, you know, um, beyond abusive. The idea that the way that you're going to turn your life around uh, from having uh, problematic drug use is being forced to work in a chicken processing plant for KFC for no pay uh, with all of the money going to the rehab that you've been forced into by the government, um, you know, it's it's pretty obvious where the incentives lie in that. And, you know, like I say, there are a lot of people in the, in the rehabilitation community who do good work, who come to it from not just a good place in their hearts, but from a science-based approach. But when you drill down into the industry, like every other industry, it's about making money. And if you can figure out a way to have the government force people to become your customers, um, that's obviously a pro- uh, a very profitable uh, way to do business, but you not know, I, an ethical one. Uh, yeah, I, I was just watching a, a, a hearing today about trade practices, and uh, you had senators... Uh, getting sanctimonious and talking about forced labor in other countries. And of course it is a problem in other countries, but I mean, my God, the, the nerve of these people, the finger wag, uh, while, while this is going on in the U S with the, you know, I mean, I was aware of, of prison labor for sure, but, um, rehab labor, rehab slave labor is, uh, is appalling. Well, I think you've touched on a pretty important aspect of this and why we're even talking about mandatory rehabilitation. And that is to preserve uh, a profit stream for actors that are going to lose out on the profit stream of jailing people. I mean, as our incarceration system becomes more and more privatized and handed over to for-profit companies, any proposal to reduce that size is going to meet lots of opposition unless you say, well, you know, 
if you want to get into the industry of mandatory rehabilitation instead, and then suddenly Core Civic and Geo Group start opening up rehabilitation centers um, to 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 maintain that that stream. I mean, just open dispensaries, they're, they're, guys. They're, yeah, I mean, there are obviously good actors in this arena, people who who get into into this to help people, but. As you said, David, there's a lot of money in this. And when you start throwing around government contracts, because these aren't going to be state facilities, these are going to be mostly private actors that are contracted out. Uh, it really skews the incentives here. Yeah. And I also have to call, you know, there's been uh, no distinction for almost the entire recovery industry, not just between uh, problematic and non-problematic use, which of course... Uh, non-problematic use doesn't make them money and problematic use is their bread and butter, uh, but no uh, distinction between different substances. And so they've been part of the big lie that cannabis is so harmful of a substance that it justifies these prohibitions, it justifies this police state and this drug war industrial complex and 600,000 arrests. And they're just not willing to stand up and say, you know what, for the vast majority of people, smoking weed is just not a big deal. And furthermore, this is a medicinal plant. And further, furthermore, uh, this plant can actually be helpful to a lot of people in trying to transition from more uh, dangerous or problematic substances. Uh, you know, there are people, of course, doing that work, but the industry itself has always circled the wagons around all drugs are bad, except the ones you can buy legally, uh, and all use is bad. And so, that to me is just so dissociated from reality that it, it, it casts a doubt on everything that you do, uh, you know, to pretend that there's no difference between the potential dangers of heroin and cannabis is a disservice. And who, and who are you, the DEA administrator from 2015? <laughs> <laughs> but you hear this from 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 uh, recovery people all the time. Or, you know, people will say, hey, you know, cannabis is actually helpful to me. This is even down to the level of individual uh, health provi healthcare providers and and therapists, etc, because they've all been ingrained with this dogma. Uh, that, oh my God, if we start to draw the line between problematic and non-problematic use, or if we accept that for some people, uh, cannabis may actually be very beneficial, uh, then we have to look at all these people as individuals. And if we lose the ability to use the law as a cudgel to force them into these programs, well, where does that end? Uh, and I would say, hopefully it ends with a rethinking at the macro level of drugs, society, criminal justice, public health, um, you know, all the while we have a very real, very deadly uh, opioid and other drug uh, addiction problem, an overdose problem in this country and using resources uh, to force people who don't need help or even don't want help into rehab uh, just takes money away 
from providing care. Part of the article is about how people will get forced into rehab for cannabis almost always because they were either arrested or because uh, they're a minor being sent by their parents. Uh, but you know, almost everyone in rehab for cannabis. Some people do have dependency problems. If you feel you need treatment for that, of course you should uh, have that access and hopefully that will be helpful to you. But that's the small minority of people. If somebody gets forced into rehab through the courts and they take a space away in an overcrowded facility, for somebody who is maybe struggling with opioids and actually wants to be in a rehab facility, um, well, who who benefits from that other than the industry itself? Uh, I was going to say that um, Democrats have been making some noise about moving ahead with cannabis reform. And uh, given some of the things we've talked about and, and some of President Biden's ideas here, uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to be as good as it should be. Well, nothing's ever going to be as good as it should <laughs> But by a lot. <laughs> but I would, that, I would say, I, I, I think there's My feeling reasons... when I open up that meat breath canister. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic and there's always reason to be concerned. Um, recently, when a, a group of senators who are, so the MORE Act, the, the sort of big federal uh, cannabis policy bill uh, passed in the House, uh, almost overwhelmingly with Democratic support, it should be said, and almost uh, totally Republican opposition with exceptions on both sides. It now moves to the Senate. There does seem to be the votes to do it. Uh, we saw Senators uh, Chuck Schumer and um, Cory Booker recently met with a coalition of cannabis uh, policy organizations, and they were actually a really good choice of some progressive organizations, including Normal, including the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, the National Minority Cannabis Industry Association. So they were meeting with the right people. Um, and that to me was, you know, that could be window dressing, but it, it felt like more than that. And the people who were in that meeting uh, reported a real will to not just change this terrible law, but to do it in a way uh, that supports racial and social equity. Now here's where the concern comes in. Almost immediately after that, a new group formed called the United States Cannabis Council. Uh, and it is a group of all of the sort of big retrograde money in the industry uh, has formed this new lobbying group, places like Acreage Holding, uh, Cresco Labs, and uh, these big, huge capitalized, you know, this is, the, like the place where uh, John Boehner went to be uh, on the board, Cura Leaf. Uh, and they're going to, of course, lobby for, they're going to say, oh, we want everything to be socially and racially equitable. Uh, but they're only going to say that in public, behind the scenes in the smokeless back rooms uh, where policy gets actually decided, they're going to push for a top-down oligarchic 
version of federal legalization. So what we have to do as a community, not just a community of people with anti-capitalist ideas, but also as the weed community, as the people who bore the brunt of these policies, uh, who suffered, uh, you know, obviously the, the arrests are very, very racially skewed and the system itself is very racist. And depending on where you live, you could be four to six to eight times more likely to be arrested if you're a person of color. It, it, you are a hundred times more likely to be arrested if you smoke weed. Uh, so, you know, in varying levels, everyone who's been part of this weed community has uh, been on the wrong end of this oppressive prohibition. And we all need to push not just to change these laws, uh, but to do it in the right way and to create a, I really think that a equitable cannabis industry can be a model if we are ever going to transform the economy in this country and make it work for workers, make it work for the environment uh, and make it fair, uh, we have to start somewhere. And, and weed is actually a great place to start because as much as there is big money in it now, it does not have the kind of entrenched interests uh, that you know, oil and railroads and all the things uh, from that quote have. You know, it's new ground. It's the best place I can think of to try to actually implement uh, a new way of organizing the economy. And the time is now, you know, it's going to be uh, five years from now, it's going to look uh, however it's going to look and be a lot harder to change than it is now when these laws are actually uh, up for debate when weed is among the commanding heights of the economy. <laughs> uh, David, uh, so uh, we recorded this on uh, Thursday, um, but by the time anybody's listening to this, it's Friday, and I understand you have a new episode of Great Moments in Weed History dropping today as well. Uh, what's on the pod? Yeah, my, my partner on the podcast, Abdullah Saeed, and I are actually taking on the story of one of the most damaging bureaucrats in the history of American governance, the ultimate enemy of weed smokers everywhere, a man who uh, implemented policies that still ruin lives, not just in the US, but all over the world. And that is, of course, Harry J. Anslinger. He was the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He was sort of the emblematic person of the reefer madness era of the 1930s, 1937. He pushed the Marijuana Tax Act through Congress, which created federal prohibition. He was a super pronounced racist uh, and implemented uh, programs to use the laws to go after Mexican-American immigrants and uh, African-American people. Particularly, he went after the jazz community. Uh, there's a new movie that's just premiering uh, today called The United States versus Billie Holiday, which is really the story of Harry Anslinger hounding Billie Holiday into an early grave. Um, and I got to see in advance of the movie. I, I thought it was a good representation of history, but it really focuses on uh, a very small part of the war on drugs. This, you know, 
And so we wanted to do an episode where we really drill down who was Harry Anslinger, uh, the myths and the truths, how is it still affecting our lives uh, today? And of course, we are great moments in weed history. So every episode, you know, is centered around a great moment. This was a, a, a tough one for that, except that uh, about 10 years ago, I paid a visit to uh, the final resting place of Mr. Harry J. Anslinger, and I uh, sat upon his grave, and I rolled myself a joint, and I smoked <laughs> myself a joint, and I planted a seed in the fertile soil above his rotting corpse, and I uh, watered that seed in very, very thoroughly in the most personal way uh, possible. <laughs> Owned so hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, J. Edgar Hoover is buried here in D.C., and uh, Sam and I have uh, have discussed uh, the possibility of doing something similar, uh, but we are cowards, and uh, <laughs> also it's right in the middle of a city. I don't know where Anslinger is buried. Uh, I, I have a feeling that one of the, like, 15 law enforcement agencies that prowl Washington, D.C. Uh, would probably not look they, too kindly upon they, us, even vaping. They probably have a drone assigned from the skies <laughs> watching Hoover's grave uh, at all times. But David, post-pandemic, if you make your way down to the East Coast, get Sam and I to take you out to Hoover's grave. Maybe uh, maybe we'll get some courage to do something. All right. You bring the meats. You bring the meat breath, and I'll, I'll bring the. Uh, <laughs> I'll bring the fire. I, I'm on it. With that, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit this bowl right here, uh, to close out our little uh, our little session here. Are you not smoking, David? What's going on? Oh, you know what? Give me. Can you give me two seconds? I'll let another. <laughs> After all that, hold on. Go for it. David has now left the room. Bean has left the building. <laughs> what are you Better drinking come there? Back what are you huge... drinking there, Sam? Uh, a beer. Right, nice. Oh, there it is. I can't break with tradition. I'm I'm fired up with you. <laughs> there it is. Nice. Well, uh, once again, David, thanks for coming on. And uh, everybody check out the podcast. I'm sure they can listen to it on uh, all the basic podcast streaming platforms. Let the record show that uh, Sam Sachs has a wee, uh, has a joint and a bowl going. <laughs> I do. I, I, well, that puts your average <laughs> that puts your average at you know one weed smoking vehicle to one host of the show. So there it is. That's right. Yes. That's teamwork. I had to boost our average. 